You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. As we heard Porrick describing in it says in the papers, a door fell off an Irish Air Corps helicopter and landed in the grounds of a secondary school in Dublin yesterday. The helicopter, part of the emergency air service, was on its way back to Casement Aerodrome in Baldonnell just before six o'clock when the rear door came off and fell into Moyle Park College in Clondalkin. No one was hurt. Kevin Byrne is with us. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel with the Air Corps. Kevin is now an airport safety and security auditor and I know you were involved in helping put a door back on a helicopter the last time this happened we'll get back we'll get on to that in a moment but Kevin first of all what do you make of what happened yesterday well it's a uh, good morning firstly it's, it's a most fortunate and unfortunate incident in that helicopters are not supposed to drop pieces onto the ground unless no. water bombing which is what this aircraft has been done before or have been used for before when the gorse fires and forest fires are out there but um, we were fortunate in that the, the door fluttered to the ground. These things fall off because they're actually quite light and they kind of fall like a sycamore leaf to the ground. They don't actually plunge straight to the ground. I'm not sure the height at which the helicopter was flying, but the, uh, the door fell onto uh, some ground and didn't make contact with any building, any person or any body. So, you know, we were lucky from that point of view. There were no injuries. But um, I'm sure there is a very important... Um, incident investigation taking place straight away the helicopter would have landed without the door and of course that's a, an emergency in its own right and then they have recovered the door to my knowledge and this will be part and parcel of a very important uh, technical investigation taking place this morning in uh, Baldonnell. It's a sliding door is it manual or automatic could it have fallen off by itself? Well it's possible but it is a very uh, safety featured item particularly after the first incident which took place more than a decade ago this is a sliding door a bit like a large door on the side of a van believe it or not and it is uh, in place and it's locked closed before the aircraft uh, departs the uh, airport and coming into land though it's usually a standard operating procedure an SOP within the Air Corps to open the door the crew member in the back of the aircraft two pilots up the front he will ask permission of the aircraft commander to open the door because uh, firstly it's a very good means of escape in the unlikely event of an emergency but more important than that it allows the person in the back to be an extra set of eyes because these helicopters don't forget can land in places which are not airports like uh, fields and other places which might have obstacles they might have antennae they might have wires so an extra set of wires in the back of a helicopter has always been part and parcel of air corps service and air corps safety features and uh, i presume this is what was going to happen on the way in final approach to baldonald but i don't know for sure the door slides back under control it is locked in place then so that the person in the back can see what is going on around him or her and the aircraft makes a safe landing why it should fall off i don't know because there is a speed above which the door should not be opened or it might be damaged and uh, and be detached now this has happened before and you were responsible for getting the door back on the helicopter that time this was in killarney uh, the then transport minister a rather shaken martin cullen was on board and what happened then well, I suspect uh, the door was opened inappropriately, and I can't remember the exact results of the um, investigation, but it was a left-hand door, and it fluttered into a pond or a, an area of water, and they were, of course, putting in an order for a new door, which was many thousands of euros, as you can imagine. There's no cheap part of an aircraft, particularly helicopter, but uh, I think divers or people went into the pond, retrieved the door, and it was found to be in very good mechanical condition. It was looked at by the factory, of course, and it said, no, you can reuse that again. 
um, some minor repairs were done, coat of paint, and it was back on the helicopter within, I think, two weeks or so, and it's probably still flying on the same helicopter. So they're very resilient. I didn't see much damage on the photographs I have seen from the crash of the accident site in uh, Clondalkin, so I'm hoping that after repairs it'll be put back on the aircraft. But, of course, the manufacturers, Leonardo, of the AW129 helicopter would be interested in this because, of course, if there is a fault, and I'm not making any statements yet, I just don't know, it's too early. If there's a fault, there are many thousands of these, well, certainly many hundreds of this helicopter in service, and I've seen them in Hong Kong and in Dubai and other places. They will want to know, is there a a flaw with the helicopter? Does it have to be checked out for that purpose? Kevin Byrne, thanks for speaking to us. Kevin Byrne, retired Lieutenant Colonel with the Air Corps and now an Airport Safety and Security Auditor. The Doyle Committee examining the state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic will hold its first meeting today. Among those giving evidence will be the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, the Head of the HSE, Paul Reid, and the Secretary-General of the Department of Health, Jim Breslin. Mr Breslin is expected to say that the threat from the coronavirus could last for years. Four additional deaths were announced last night, bringing the death toll to 1,547. Joining us this morning is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr Ronan Glynn. Good morning. Good morning. Do you agree with Jim Breslin's assessment? One way or another, could we be haunted by this virus for years? Well, notwithstanding the uh, amazing or, or very good success, I guess, that we've had in the past number of weeks and months, and I know that that's not success for the people who've who've had this virus, it's not success for the families who are bereaved, uh, that notwithstanding the actions of, of people across Ireland and across society have, have saved uh, a very significant amount of lives. Um, but that notwithstanding, unfortunately, we, we still don't have a treatment, we don't have a vaccine, uh, we don't have a rapid test. And until those things are developed and and, and brought out in a mass way that can be used across the population we, we will be living with with this for the foreseeable uh, future whether that's months or years is difficult to say at this point um, but I think we are living in a new normal and as we as we now set out to ease restrictions it is very important that people uh, continue to practice what I hope have become normal um, habits for them over the past number of months including hand washing and respiratory etiquette and social distancing. People may have read reports over recent days about vaccine tests. What's your assessment? Is there cause for optimism there? There's certainly cause for optimism. We have seen an unprecedented level of research and activity around the development of a vaccine for COVID. Um, The first phase one trials for vaccines for COVID uh, commenced in March. And given that we didn't know about this virus um, in December, uh, it really is unprecedented that the speed that this is happening, uh, and that reflects uh, research across the entire continuum of COVID. There's been over twenty-three thousand scientific papers published to date. Um, but that notwithstanding, again, uh, the typical length of time for a vaccine to be developed is between 10 and 15 years. Uh, the, the fastest vaccine that's ever been developed was one for uh, Ebola, and that took between four and five years. Now, I'm not sitting here this morning saying that it's going to take that long, uh, but I think we do need to exercise caution when we hear um, some reports that we could potentially have a vaccine that will be available uh, as soon as the end of the summer. Um, because even if we do have a vaccine that's safe, 
uh, and effective um, and uh, produces immunity for a sustained period of time in people who receive the vaccine, it still needs to be produced on a massive scale because every country in the world will want this vaccine at the same time. As we heard earlier from Louise O'Reilly, it's likely that TDs in this new Doyle committee will ask about nursing homes today. Now, the latest figures published last night show that in the region of 54% of deaths have been in nursing homes. What went wrong? Clearly, we've seen across the world um, that this virus, that this disease impacts uh, disproportionately on elderly populations. Um, Unfortunately, again, we've seen across the world that this virus gets in to residential care settings, it gets into nursing homes uh, with all of the uh, terrible impacts that that, that entails. Um, obviously, we continue to, to monitor uh, what, what has happened here in Ireland and we continue to strengthen the response. Um, and, and as part of that, we are looking at mortality. And I guess one of the things I can say is that we have done... Uh, a number of things that are unprecedented versus other countries in the world uh, in terms of our nursing homes. So we have looked at, we've done a special census of mortality across our nursing homes. And what that has reassured us about at least is that any of the excess mortality that we've seen in those settings this year is associated with COVID. So so there isn't um, excess mortality from a range of other diseases in those settings that we're not aware of and there's very few of any other countries in the world uh, that can say that the other thing mm, but for the first number of weeks was insufficient attention paid to the situation in nursing homes i would contest that um we we were one of the first countries in the world to introduce restrictions in fact we were the we were the quickest country in the world to introduce visitor restrictions in nursing homes uh, versus the point at which we had our first case uh, we moved quickly uh, and we moved rapidly and comprehensively in terms of our actions um, and as i'm sure you've seen the graphs what what's very clear is that this disease as it is in in all countries it's in communities first and then it gets into congregated settings uh, and we can see that that's exactly what happened here in Ireland as well unfortunately um, but there are learnings we, we are learning we have strengthened our response and I guess the key thing as we move forward uh, is 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 that we we, we protect the most vulnerable uh, to the greatest extent possible. We're now in the first phase of the easing of restrictions and there are those, I'm sure you know, who think we're moving too slowly, certainly in comparison to some other countries. Is it possible that these phases, that they could be revised? So as we have done throughout uh, this process, we follow the guidance of the ECDC and the World Health Organization. And they're, they're both very clear that you should leave between two and four weeks between phases and that the, the, that the measures you release, you should do that in an incremental manner, in a stepwise manner. Uh, our, our peak number of cases, so the, the top of our curve to date, happened uh, much later than many other countries. So many other countries across Europe peaked at the end of March. We were well into April. And that, what that meant was that on the way up, it bought us time in terms of uh, 
getting our PPE in terms of ensuring that we had adequate hospital capacity, adequate ICU capacity. But now that we're on the way back down, it also allows us to learn from what other countries are doing because, again, they're ahead of us by a couple of weeks. And we really would be remiss of a remiss of us not to take that opportunity to wait for an extra week or two to see what they're doing to learn from what they're doing and to ensure that if there are issues that arise in those countries that we don't make those same mistakes. All right so are those plans those phases are they under constant assessment then could there be change? So the NEFIT meets on an ongoing basis. It's been meeting weekly now for many months uh, and and sometimes two and three times a week for many months. Um, And clearly we keep all measures under review at all times. Uh, And that's with a view towards both the potential release of measures, but also obviously uh, as now as we move forward, we also need to consider whether anything needs to be escalated in the other direction. And we really hope that we won't have to go in the opposite direction. And a, a key part of phasing this, a key part of doing this slowly, is to try to ensure in so much in so far as is possible uh, that we won't have to go into reverse and that we can gradually de- learn to live with this disease because as we started this interview by saying we have to live with this for the foreseeable future. And so it's important that we do this in a stepwise manner that people get used to the new normal and hopefully we can avoid a second wave, a second spike. Throughout all of this, obviously other serious illnesses haven't gone away. What's the situation now with vital screening services like cervical check and breast check? When will they be back? So at the moment they're paused. Um, The intention is that screening services and that other health services will get back up and running as soon as it's safe to do so. Um, But as we as we sit here this morning, it's it's too early to say precisely when they will be back up and running. We have to think about both the the safety of obviously the the men and women who attend for those services, uh, but also the the safety of the staff who 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 provide those services. Um, What I would say, though, if possible, is that no one should be waiting for a screen if they have symptoms. So if a woman is concerned that she has symptoms, if a man is concerned that he has symptoms, your GP is open. Your GP has been open throughout this process. Uh, they're there and they're waiting to assess you and to ensure that if you need to be diagnosed, if you, if you need a test, that test can take place. Uh, screening is an extremely valuable part of what we offer but ultimately screening is to pick up asymptomatic disease. What but we no routine screening for some time yet is what you're saying? Not, not for the foreseeable future, no, not at the moment. Hydroxychloroquine, as I'm sure you've heard, is back in the news today after Donald Trump said last night that he was taking it. Um, what's the advice here? We have looked at this advice here in Ireland uh, as recently as the middle of April and it's very clear that that there simply isn't an evidence base at the moment for hydroxychloroquine and the other drug that that, uh, the president uh, mentioned, which was azithromycin. So Mm -hmm. we would be telling people uh, certainly not to consider taking any medications without the advice of of their own doctor. And certainly from our perspective, we'd be saying that there's no evidence of a protective effect uh, from those drugs at present. I know that Donald Trump has said in the past, what harm can it do? Could it harm someone? Uh, well, any drug uh, has the potential to, to harm uh, an individual. And again, um, without getting into the specifics of a particular drug or a specific individual, uh, I, I would caution anyone against taking a drug without the advice of, of their GP in the first instance. You're very diplomatic. Dr. Ronan Glynn, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, thank you for joining us this morning. 
The Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan has apologised to the people of Cahar Sivine in County Kerry for the manner in which a direct provision centre was opened in the town in mid-March. But in an open letter published as an advertisement in the Kerryman newspaper, he has rejected calls to close the centre. There have been around 20 cases of coronavirus among people living in the centre over the past two months. Our southern editor Pascal Sheehy joins us now. Pascal, will you just tell us the background to this please? Well, the background to this uh, story in Carasivine is perhaps different to uh, similar stories around the country which uh, uh, occurred previous to this insofar as uh, there were rumours that a direct provision centre was to be set up in the former uh, Skellig Star Hotel in Carasivine. The department was asked directly about those rumours in January and denied them, said there was no contract signed for a direct provision centre in Carasivine and almost overnight or certainly within a matter of days uh, in the middle of March a, a direct provision centre was established at the former Skellig Star Hotel in Carasivine. Now, uh, when local people realised that it had been opened, uh, they decided to row in behind it rather than to oppose it. Uh, and it, it was put to me when I visited Carasivine within the past uh, fortnight that, look, uh, the population in Carasivine is declining and the area could perhaps maybe even do with uh, a number of the families or the number of families that were moved in here. But uh, trust ebbed away pretty quickly when within uh, just over a fortnight uh, there was a case of coronavirus uh, confirmed at the Skellig Star Direct Provision Centre and the people of the area were uh, not told about that by uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, I think they uh, heard about it uh, by accident and it was subsequently confirmed to them and in the full page advertisement taken out in the Kerryman today uh, which I believe will be repeated in the Kerry's Eye newspaper tomorrow, uh, Charlie Flanagan acknowledges that this gave rise to upset and anger uh, and suspicion and worry and he says on his behalf and on behalf of his junior minister David Stanton who's responsible for this area I really regret the extent to which our actions uh, fueled that upset and anger and suspicion and worry and his apology is to the people uh, of Cahar Sivine. It's an open letter to the people of Kerry, but it's an apology in particular to the people of Cahar Sivine for the way in which he says we had to open the direct provision centre in the Skellig Star. Okay. And is there an apology to the people who are living in the Skellig Star? From my reading of of the open letter, uh, there isn't, and this is quite a detailed letter. But then again, look, there are channels of communication have been opened by the department with the residents there. And I suppose if you are going to um, communicate with a cohort of people who are new to the area, uh, many of whom don't speak good English, you're not going to take out a a full-page advertisement in the local newspapers to do that. I have no idea if Charlie McCreevy, Charlie Flanagan, excuse me, uh, intends to apologise to uh, the uh, 
residence in uh, the direct provision centre in Carsivine, but I do know that uh, there are separate uh, channels of communication open uh, between the department and the residents there. This, he says, is an open letter to the people of Kerry and in particular an apology to the people uh, of Carsivine. Okay, and he also explained the reasoning for the centre being open. What did he say? Yes, he goes into a very, very detailed uh, explanation of why the the centre opened in the manner in which it did. He says in early March, his officials realised that they needed new centres uh, and needed them quickly. Uh, they were faced with a health emergency uh, and it wasn't tenable to have large numbers of international protection applicants in emergency hotel uh, accommodation, uh, sharing facilities with other guests. They needed other dedicated centres where they could offer care and services to uh, the people who were seeking asylum. So he says, uh, we moved people within days. It was fast, I admit that. It, uh, it left little or no time for engagement, I admit that. Uh, it presented. It was presented as a fait accompli. I admit that too. All I can say is that in my department's defence, we simply did not feel we had a choice. We were facing an unprecedented health emergency, and the Skellig Star was available to us. And he acknowledges also uh, that the speed of the operation had consequences. That there was, they were unable to have. Uh, community meetings. They were unable to have local people come into the facility and examine how it had been reconfigured um, and that there couldn't be meetings with centre staff. Uh, There was no time to do that is effectively uh, what he has said in relation to that. Okay, for now, Pascal, thank you very much. Our Southern Editor, Pascal Sheehy. So we are being told this morning we will have to live with COVID-19 for some time. The warning comes from the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr Ronan Glynn, who also says that measures taken here to show the virus show the virus can be controlled. If there is a second wave, he says, we'll know what to do. Globally, there have been 4,700,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 since the infection was first identified at the end of last year, according to the latest figures from the World Health Organization. But across Europe, the initial epicentre of the pandemic outside China, countries are taking tentative steps towards reopening. Agarista Baca is Principal Expert for Emergency Preparedness with the European Centre for Disease Control, which advises is uh, public health authorities across Europe and she's on the line now. A very good morning to you, Agarista, and thank you for taking our call this morning. Thank you, Brian. Good morning. Can you just tell us, as you look across Europe at how the uh, pandemic is being dealt with in individual countries, can we say at this stage that we've now, in terms of Europe anyway, passed the peak of this infection? Uh, what we see in the last uh, few weeks is that almost all the countries are... Um, literally passing or have passed the peak, some of them significantly, some less. Um, I think the last one is Poland, uh, but uh, almost all the EU, EEA countries have passed it, yes. And in terms however, of... There is a however. Yes. That, um, uh, however, this does not by any means mean that the, the virus is gone, like you were saying in the introduction. 
Yes, and I think we'll come to that and tease out what that might mean in just a moment. But in terms of how Ireland has managed this, and it's not a competition, we should say that uh, uh, you know very clearly. Um, but there is a question here of benchmarking, I suppose, the performance of countries in terms of the strategies that they've deployed. How has Ireland done, if you look at things like rate of infection, fatalities, uh, how our health system has coped? I, I think you have done remarkably well um, for... Um I mean, if you compare with larger countries, of course, um, you have to actually, uh, it's very difficult to compare countries because countries had uh, different testing uh, strategies. So we really have to find uh, um, equivalent to like apples and apples, like we say. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult. But overall, I think um, really well because um, you had significant number of cases. But it was managed really well, we think. As you've been reminding us, we're not by any means out of this. And uh, one of the questions is the the risk of a second wave, of uh, a further peak or spike uh, in infections uh, and illness and deaths. Um, what's the view there uh, in the Centre for Disease Control about the, the risk of that? We are actually preparing uh, what we call a risk assessment for that, uh, and this is our, actually what the European Commission is asking us to prepare for. Um, so within the next few weeks, uh, and uh, actually all May, we've been working uh, to this purpose. So we will um, publish something uh, with all the cumulative, uh, let's say, um, um, guidance and uh, what our modelers are saying uh, for a second wave. Um, it's uh, like um, I don't know if you have read our director's. Um, uh, our director gave a, an interview yesterday, and she said it's a matter of when, so mm -hmm. not if. So we we are expecting a second. We don't know when it will come, unfortunately. Yes, but I we think uh, with the numbers we see with the. Um, uh, uh, antibody testing studies, um, we see very, very low um, antibody titers and uh, percentages of antibodies in people. So we certainly think that the virus will come back. Yeah. In that interview, I see Dr. Andrea Amon. I presume that's the interview you're, you're referring yeah, to. Yes, she also, is, yes. She also says, she's talking to The Guardian, I think, newspaper. She said she also detects an ominous weakening in the public's resolve. People have been um, dealing with these restrictions and limitations on their on their life for, for a number of months now. And uh, and uh, the expect, expecting them to continue that is uh, is quite a big ask. It is, and with the weather getting better, I mean, we are hitting significant quarantine fatigue, like we say, or lockdown fatigue, and it's unreasonable, of course, to um, uh, persuade people to stay in when there is no uh, significant pressure on the health system anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the thing is that we, we still need to be really vigilant, and um, of course, public health cannot relax during the summer uh, not that they relax any time no. but uh, and uh, there is a significant need for continuing testing especially contact tracing uh, with and the expected uh, movement of people uh, for tourism as much as this uh, the limited one that we're expecting to have this summer uh, 
And if I can ask you, Agarista, if I just ask you finally uh, on an issue that's been of some debate here, reopening schools, it's already happening in countries like uh, Denmark. I think the Belgians are moving in that direction. Do you have a view on how soon we might in this country move towards getting children back into the classroom? Uh, This is a a big discussion and uh, we've been following it. It's one of the few areas that we have... uh, uh, not issue the guidance, I have to say, from the HDC. Um, it's really a tough decision because um, all children need school and education. Um, the older children need to sit for their exams and they are better into in uh, following instructions for physical distancing. The younger children need to, their education uh, to... To learn and, and, mm-hmm. and it's their, the vital years that they need to be there and they might be more in need. Yes. Uh, however, we don't know how they will behave um, in school and schools actually are pressed because they don't have uh, uh, all the capacity to deal with all this. All right. Well, uh, the answer is a little bit political as uh, yes. to what you need to do. <laughs> Uh, we don't have a good answer. And on top of that, uh, there was this publicity, as you have probably seen, that we have detected a post-infectious syndrome in children. And this is concerning because right. this is one more thing that we cannot really understand the spectrum and how okay. frequent this is and All right. which Christi- children are in higher risk. Okay, well, we'll no doubt be continuing to debate it here and uh, and elsewhere in the time ahead. We'll uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. That's uh, Agarista Baca from the European Centre for Disease Control. Four Green Party councillors have written to the deputy leader, Catherine Martin, urging her to challenge Eamon Ryan for the leadership of the party. Cork City and County councillors Oliver Moran, Lorna Bogue, Colette Finn and Liam Quaid wrote to Ms Martin yesterday evening saying they believe she, and not Mr Ryan, is prepared to make difficult choices for the greater good. Now, the Green Party isn't saying anything officially this morning, but we are joined on the line now by Oliver Moran. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. Why have you written this letter? Well, look, uh, I, I suppose for, for people who, who um, may have been paying attention to um, the Green Party more closely than, than others, um, having a member, having a leadership election uh, is actually a requirement of the Constitution after every general election. Now, ordinarily, it would be um, government formation will be done and dusted by now, um, so it, it is falling at quite an awkward time. Um, but at the same time, it, it is part of the party that we do have these um, and it's been 10 years since the membership of the party have actually voted on a leadership election uh, the election in 2016 uh, was uncontested at that time and the party has changed very dramatically since then uh, in 2011 there was 300 members to the party now there's 3,000 members so that means there's over 90% of uh, the membership of the party have never had the opportunity to, to vote for the leader. And if we don't take this opportunity now, um, what's going to happen is that uh, we, we won't have another leadership election, possibly until another five years. So it could be 15 years um, without there having been uh, an opportunity for the members to say who, who they want to be their leader. And to be clear about this, do you believe that Catherine Martin would be a better leader of the Green Party than Eamon Ryan? I think what's important is which direction you look at. I think Eamon did an absolutely amazing job over the last 10 years. Um, I 
I voted for him in, in, in 2011. I, I signed his nomination papers in 2016. Um, I think if we were to look for somebody who was needed during that period, which was a really difficult period for the party, um, I don't think we could have done better than the name. Now, you must also bear in mind, Catherine was there with him. She was deputy leader for that entire period as well. Uh, but where we are now, I, the party is in an, an entirely different place. Um, I think that the challenges looking ahead for the party over the next five, uh, ten years are such that we're going to have to broad, broaden our appeal. We've already started doing that. Um, and I, I think Catherine resonates with our new voters on issues such as health, housing and education uh, very strongly. Um, we know as a party we need to develop outside of Dublin. Catherine is, is from County Monaghan. and she, she speaks the language of, of rural Ireland. She can connect with people um, outside of Dublin uh, on rural and small town issues, which are going to be very important. And these, these are the challenges for the party looking forward. So I think... My personal view, and there's going to be other views in the party, my personal view is, is that Catherine is a very strong candidate. Um, but there will be other people who, who look right. at Eamon. Are, are you not being given... Given that you mentioned Eamon Ryan's record and given that he has been leader when basically the party came back from the brink of oblivion, I mean, I think you were reduced to three councillors at one stage. Yep. Are you not being a bit ungrateful here? I, it, look, it, it's not about, it's not about, about, about gratitude. And uh, as I said... It, Catherine was there for those uh, ten years as well in, in a deputy leader role, um, and if you're if, if you're talking to people such as myself and, and the, the other council who signed the letter um, asking for for Catherine to put herself forward, we're actually very indebted to, to Catherine as well. I mean, it, it's Catherine who, who taught us how to canvass. It's, it's Catherine who taught us how to. Um, I mean, those votes which have elected uh, the forty nine uh, local councillors and, and 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 twelve TDs. They, they were votes given to us, but it was Catherine who taught us how to go and ask people to give us their votes. Do you so, believe then that there are many people within the party who share your view? Oh, there's there's a groundswell. I, I, I can feel a groundswell. It's it's uh, particularly among among younger uh, voters. Um, I mean, the, for the, for them, you know, issues to to do with climate justice and, and, and broader social justice issues are very strong. Uh, you know, Catherine is very strong on on, on women's issues. Uh, she's uh, you know, founder of the Women's Caucus in, in the Oireachtas, um, but also uh, among among older older members of the party, like there there is a very strong tradition of, okay. of having and, and just a, a, a grassroots bottom up democratic principles in the All right. party. Just, and just finally on this, for, for have so you heard back from her? Is, is, uh, dangerous. Have you heard back from her? Have you had any contact with her since you wrote this letter? Uh, not yet. We we only wrote the letter yesterday. Um, now, obviously, we. we we're in contact with, with, with Catherine regularly. Um, she hasn't uh, said wh- whether sh- she would go forward or not. Um, I, I mentioned to her it to her. I think a month or two ago. Um, so I look. The, so the it won't have come as a Catherine surprise and, to her. Um, I I hope that she decides to go forward so that there will be a a, a leadership contest and that the members of the party can have a say. All right. Listen, thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. That was Oliver Moran of the Green Party. I should say that we did try and contact both Eamon Ryan and Catherine Martin, but we haven't received any response from either.
The British government will later today outline its approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol in its Brexit agreement with the European Union. Here's what our Northern editor has been reporting this morning. Boris Johnson foresees no new customs infrastructure. Technology will have a role in dealing with goods that might come across the border here, but there will be an expanded infrastructure at ports and airports for agri-foods. No need for an EU permanent presence in Belfast. It will insist there will be unfettered access for goods going from the north to Britain and no tariffs on goods coming the other way. Let's discuss this now with Aidan Michael Connolly, Director of the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium and our Europe editor, Tony Connolly. Aidan, have you any more detail than that? Well, we do know that there is going to be some sort of operational support coming from HMRC and and some other government agencies. Uh, But the big thing here for us is that it's a significant step that the UK government is moving to deliver upon their their obligations within the withdrawal agreement and the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, there's new ways of operation that are that are going to come in. We're going to need, as businesses, operational uh, support. But we're also going to need um, a generosity of spirit from the EU to give the derogations that will be uh, needed to make these mitigations work for business. However, there are some red lines for Europe, and we need to see the document to find out how close or how much over those red lines that the UK proposals go. Are you really expecting though no tariffs on goods coming into Northern Ireland and unfettered access for your businesses to Britain? Uh, well, the the thing is, from from Northern Ireland going into GB, um, you're talking that it's only really a, a, an export summary declaration. But in saying that, that can be up to 31 points of data, as we see Ukraine, the the Polish border. Um, so that's unlikely to to be uh, a movable feast. As far as stuff coming in from Great Britain, we need to see the detail. But there are certain things which are within the Union Customs Code. There are certain things that are there to protect the single market. It's like those SPA checks and we can't see how uh, that can be got around now there can be ways of moving it uh, uh, ways of maybe mitigating it but there will still be the need for checks yeah uh, uh, customs checks well, the customs is, is something that they're trying to work on. SPS, definitely, as far as products of animal origin, there will have to be those those checks. Uh, how much? Depends on whether there's a veterinary agreement as, as well as the, the free trade agreement. As far as the customs checks are concerned, you're really talking um, that that is uh, up for, for negotiation. But what we've got to remember here, this is we're, we're talking about the economics here, but we've got to remember that this isn't simply about economics. This is the standard of living issue for thousands of farmers across Northern Ireland. We have half of the discretionary income of UK households and we're already in very uncertain times. So the UK and the EU need to agree a way to uh, avoid these extra costs on on food in our tables. Okay, let me bring in Tony at this point. Tony, will there be generosity of spirit, as Aidan puts it, from the EU? Uh, The European Commission approach, Audrey, would be uh, there are flexibilities within the rules but uh, there's no getting around the rules if you like. Um, Now when it comes to checks and controls there will be checks and controls on goods when it comes to customs liabilities, customs procedures as Aidan said there will be uh, checks and controls required on food products, on animal derived products, live animals of course which happens at the moment. The way the EU interprets the protocol is that all goods coming in are, if you like, guilty until proven innocent. In other words, 
There's a risk that all goods could cross the border into the south and therefore into the EU single market. Uh, it's only if you can make a verifiable or legitimate case that those goods definitely won't cross the border that you will get derogations or you'll get a tariff exemption or a tariff rebate. Uh, so you can see how both sides are taking uh, you know, quite different views of how this protocol is going to be implemented. The EU takes a maximalist approach. It says it operates on the rule of law. This is the EU's what they call the Union Customs Code, which applies to all member states. It makes sure that it makes sure that any goods coming into the European Union have paid duty, are safe for consumers, uh, and that those uh, principles should apply uh, to goods going from Great Britain, which will be a third country, into Northern Ireland, which will in effect still be part of the single market and the EU's customs area. Uh, so you can see how there is going to be a real uh, scrap over how you interpret uh, what has to happen. Okay, more coverage on this throughout the day. We are out of time for now. Thank you both very much, Tony Connolly and Aidan Michael Connolly. <laughs> A report published this morning claims that Irish beef and dairy farms could be carbon neutral if efforts to reduce emissions and capture carbon continue. It's a bold claim, but the Irish Farmers Journal commissioned report by KPMG says it's achievable. In fact, one farm in County Meath is on target to be carbon neutral by 2025. Our agriculture correspondent Fran McNulty has been to the farm. He's with us now. Fran, where is this carbon neutral aspiring enterprise? Gavin, it's in one of the most beautiful settings in County Meath. Douth Hall is an 18th century house and the 400 or so acres that surround it are owned by Devonish Nutrition. It's a food and farming company and has invested heavily in research and development and Douth is the hub of that that activity. The farm itself is in a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Despite that, it's pioneering cutting-edge technologies to help reduce the amount of fertiliser needed and increase the amount of carbon that the farm can offset. It's been listed as one of the most sustainable farms in the world. And Dr Jean Kennedy is Head of Research with Devonish and she's been telling me about the targets for Douth. We are aiming to produce carbon neutral beef and lamb by 2025. Right now we know that we are offsetting 50% of our carbon emissions on this farm with two livestock units per hectare. Uh, that's not taken into account the interventions that we have put in place to improve that further. By 2025, I expect this farm will look um, somewhat similar to, to uh, how it's looking now. We will be farming probably at two livestock units per hectare. We will be standing in fields like this with multi-species sward, in other words, different types of grasslands, uh, and we will be using less chemical inputs. We will be surrounded by trees and hedgerows, and we'll be really appreciating them probably for the first time. Gene Kennedy from Devonish. Fran, of course, this whole issue of reducing emissions is very topical at the moment. It is, Gavin. We know the Green Party and the Government Formation Talks is insisting on targets. We often hear about cutting the size of the national herd. It's seen as one possible solution. And certainly reducing the intensity of farming is, a, is another thing that's on the table. And farmers are very touchy about this issue. They're often criticised for not doing enough to change, and we'll hear from one such voice presently. But Lorcan Allen from the Farmers' Journal makes the case that the agri-sector is actively dealing with the issues that it's facing. Listening to the commentary over the last month uh, about reducing our emissions by 7%, there's a public perception that Irish agriculture is doing nothing really to address climate change, but it actually couldn't be more wrong. 
so the Irish Farmers Journal and KPMG produced this uh, report this year to show all of the positive things that are going on in agriculture to actually meet uh, the climate agenda. Carbon neutral farming is it's a bold claim. Is it achievable? The farm we're on here today is doing world-leading research where they're actually not only trying to lower the emissions from this herd of cattle beside me, but also trying to uh, measure the sequestration of the farm and how much carbon the farm is actually capturing out of the atmosphere. To the critics who simplify it as saying we need to reduce the herd and, and that achieves it, what do you say to that? At the end of the day, the world population is heading for 10 billion people. We still need to feed that population. Uh, and you know, reducing production in a part of the world like Ireland where we have a sustainable model of food production here, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's more important that countries like Ireland continue to produce food uh, and export it to parts of the world where you know, producing food isn't uh, as uh, sustainable for, for the world. There's no doubt the agri-sector is trying to deal with the emissions issues. The boom in dairy hasn't helped. There's been a drive towards more intensive farming, but even this week the EU is trying to push back. It wants more organic. And whilst farmers have been working to capture carbon, more needs to be done. And in fact, Europe is looking at ways to encourage farmers to do more. Now, there are claims and counterclaims about whether farming emissions are up and down, or up or down, and it depends on what figures you read as to what statistic is quoted. Now, John Gibbons of Antashka is very critical of the farming sector and what it's been doing and we met in his birdsong filled garden in Dublin. If they're trying to deal with it they're doing it in a very peculiar way because for example since 2015 emissions across the agricultural sector have risen by about eight percent. Now how do you define success in an era of emissions reductions when you're presiding over a system in which the emissions are rising? So I think what the farming sector and the agricultural uh, lobby has gotten really good at is talking a good fight on emissions reductions. What we're not seeing is coming through in the data. I think what we need is a modal shift, a shift in mindset. At the moment, they're approaching it from the point of view that they've got a system that is set up in a particular way, a system that benefits large-scale producers, uh, PLCs and beef factories. It also, by the way, suits um, supermarkets because it's delivering cheap food. What it is not doing is it is not benefiting the average Irish farmer who's seeing his income go down and down and it is certainly not benefiting biodiversity in Ireland. We have at the moment what amounts to a biodiversity wasteland in this country. John Gibbons of Ontashka plus a few birds for a compliment ending that report by Fran McNulty. <laughs> The North's three largest newspapers have published a letter this morning condemning threats made by loyalists to the Sunday life and Sunday world. The letter, carried by the Belfast Telegraph, the Irish News and the Newsletter, is signed by the First and Deputy First Ministers and all of the political parties in Northern Ireland. We're joined now by Martin Breen, who's the editor of The Sunday Life. Martin, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. What can you tell us about these threats? Well, they originate from a organisation called the South East Antrim UDA, which is one of the um, loyalist paramilitary organisations. Um, it seems to be the culmination of a series of stories and investigations into their activities. Um, they, they were involved in the murder of a man in Carrickfergus in January, um, a man called Glenn Quinn, who's, uh, who was terminally ill and was beaten to death because he had spoken out against them and as well as that, other investigations into their finances and into um, crimes such as drug dealing. And this appears to be the, the, the largest threat in terms of the number of journalists threatened at any one time. And they have also uh, threatened those politicians who have spoken out against the, the, the threats to the media. 
So basically, they don't like the fact that your journalists have been doing their job. Um, this must be very worrying for the journalists involved. Yes, well, it's not nice for anybody to have you know police calling to their doors in the early hours of the morning to tell them that um, they are being targeted by a, a terrorist organisation. Now, um, one of the individuals was told that he would be targeted with an undercar booby trap, which uh, is very sinister indeed. So, you know... And, in this day and age, in 2020, 22 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, um, we never thought that we would see dozens of journalists being being, being targeted again by, by one of the organisations that supposedly went out of business uh, almost 30 years ago. What have the PSNI said to you? Well, the PSNI have cautioned all the journalists involved about their personal security and they, they have said that... Um, you know, it's criminal elements linked to loyalists. It was through our own investigations and through our own police sources we were able to identify the faction responsible. Um, I think that the very fact that uh, police um, were able to come and tell us the um, information was significant because their, their, their own intelligence hadn't uncovered this. It wasn't a case of somebody picking up the phone and, you know, delivering a, a telephone threat. It, it was as a result of... Um, police intelligence. So we, we, we have, we're always asking the police for more information and to keep us updated so that we know the status of the threat um, going forward. Has anybody got any influence over these people, the South East Antrim UDA, or are they basically a bunch of criminals? They, they, they have no political representation whatsoever. And in fact, last week, um, within 24 hours of us publishing uh, a number of stories where the threats were condemned. Uh, each and every politician who was quoted in our story um, was threatened by the, by, by, by the South East Antrim UDA. That included um, people from unionist parties. Um, one was a former de de formerly decorated army officer. So they they, they don't hold uh, you know anything again. You know they they will go ahead and, and target anyone because. Years ago, you would not have thought you would not have thought that uh, some of these groups would have targeted politicians right across the board as well. Um, but we're talking about politicians from the Ulster Unionist Party, from Sinn Féin, from the SDLP, and just yesterday, a DUP politician in the area um, was warned that he too was under threat. This, of course, isn't the first time that journalists in Northern Ireland have been threatened. No, th this has been an ongoing thing. Um, in 2001, we had uh, Martin O'Hagan, who was a journalist mm. in the Sunday World, shot dead by loyalist paramilitaries. Um, last year, uh, Lear McKee was shot dead by the new IRA while they were targeting police um, during rioting in Derry. But throughout that period, there have been threats from dissident Republicans, from from loyalists, from from, from all factions. From, from And, you know, the, the, the reason that this initiative has... Um, been undertaken is because there have been so many threats and they, sh they show no, no sign of stopping. Um, basically, groups from, from, from all sides of the divide are, are trying to silence what we do and what the media right across Northern Ireland is trying to do. So I think that the reason that all the politicians and churches, trade unions and the media have, have taken this ad out is to say, you know, enough is enough. It, 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 it's time for this to stop, that, um, that we won't be silenced. Martin Breen, thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. That was Martin Breen, who's the editor of The Sunday Life. 
The plan to award calculated grades to this year's Leaving Certificate exam students is in turmoil this morning after secondary teachers were instructed by their union not to cooperate with the initiative. The Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland says the indemnity offered to teachers, which would protect them in the event of a legal action being taken by a student, falls short of what is required. It's advising members to, quote, not undertake any work on the process until this issue is resolved. We can talk to Kieran Christie, who's General Secretary of the Association of Secondary Teachers. A very good morning to you, Kieran Christie, and thanks for talking to good us. Good morning, Brian. This morning. What's the problem with this indemnification? Well, uh, first of all, Brian, can I preface my comments by saying that ACI is committed to engagement with the calculating graded process. Uh, I want to state that categorically. But the problem, to answer your question, that has emerged is very simple. Yesterday, we were presented with a text on an indemnity that fell short of the clarity that's needed uh, for teachers to undertake this work with confidence. Um, There are two problems with it, about which we need assurances and we need clarifications. Um, And the the two problems are? To the legal expenses that will have to be paid if a teacher finds these uh, uh, themselves subject to civil proceedings. Uh, The indemnity appears to cover legal expenses occurred only relating to solicitor costs, but as you know, there are usually a host of other expenses that may need to be dealt with, sort of stenographers and expert witnesses and so on. And we can't have teachers on the hook for those. Uh, secondly, um, the problem relates to the determination of costs. And if such costs, uh, you know, uh, who determines them and what's going to be included? Uh, again, the indemnity document that we've been pre- presented with lacks specificity specificity on that and on one reading of it our legal advisors uh, inform us that teachers could could be caught for up to one third of the costs of the case so we need all of that sorted out so you had these concerns yesterday on foot of your own legal advice you say did you did you go back to the department and say what's the answer to these questions Yes, we, we, we've been working uh, right late into the late last night and we've already made contact early this morning again. We are working with our legal advisors and the Department okay. of Education who in turn, as I understand it, are working with the Attorney General's office to resolve these issues. We believe they can be resolved. Uh, they must be resolved. Okay, so why then did the President of your Association go on national television last night and say that uh, the advice to teachers was not to cooperate uh, with this uh, calculated grading scheme? Well, unfortunately, at that point in time, uh, the Minister for Education had published the, the Guide for Calculated Grades. Uh, we believe that there was an attempt to bounce us into accepting uh, this uh, legal indemnity, sort of put up or shut up. But we couldn't do that because we have a duty to our members to ensure that they're fully protected. Well, it's a, it's a, a plan that's met with the approval of the TUI, with school principals, with uh, school managers, boards of management. You're the only people who have an issue, and I mean, you have legitimate questions, and presumably uh, you're, you're entitled to get answers to those. Would you not wait well, until you I get the answers before? Just a minute, let uh, me finish, Kieran. Sorry, uh, Kieran. Well, Kieran, but, uh, there are glaring just, uh, inconsistencies and difficulties yeah. within the document, and uh, uh, we have a duty to protect yeah. our members. Well, I, th- I think nobody's disputing that. The question is, could you not wait until you got the answer to your questions before you went public and alarmed, six, potentially alarmed, 60,000 Leaving Cert students and their families with this announcement that your union was not cooperating with the scheme? Well, on the contrary, we asked the department to delay until all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed here. But when journalists like yourself, Brian, yesterday evening were asking us the direction, um, have we confidence in the indemnity that has been put before us? Uh, the honest answer is no. And we couldn't, to this morning, with teachers working on this, have them working on it, uh, where there is a doubt about the 
the legal indemnity available. But we, I can tell you, we will move might and main uh, every hour. Uh, we've been working, as I say, right up till very late last night uh, to to break this impasse and, right. and to remove the barriers so the teachers so, can, can get on with this work because they want okay. to get on with well, this now, work. When you say that they're not to undertake any work on the process until this issue is resolved, there is work which they have been undertaking. Is there up to this, which will now no, cease? the guidelines, as I say, they, the minister... Uh, we think uh, somewhat prematurely he, he should have waited until today, until these issues were uh, were uh, sorted out. But he mm. has issued the guidelines yesterday evening, so no work has been uh, undertaken. People are just reading the guidelines that have been issued late last evening, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure they'll be planning their work on the basis of that. But our right. advice to our so members is very clear. Is that until the legal indemnity is fully and properly in place, uh, we're advising our members not to undertake any work on this. Okay, Kieran, very soon. Kieran Christie, General Secretary of the Association of Secretary Teachers. Thank you for that. A 17-year-old from Dublin who was hospitalised with coronavirus has returned to his work experience placement at the hospital where he was treated. Brandon Fay says his dream is to become a nurse one day. He's been talking to our reporter, Philip Bromwell. the media it was just elderly it was older people and I thought I'm 17 I'm untouchable there's a shield of armour around me but I kept hand hygiene kept every procedure I could but fortunately I caught the virus Almost two months have passed since 17 year old Brandon Fay from Dublin's north inner city found out he had COVID-19 he had been attending a routine appointment at the Mata Hospital when his consultant noticed his persistent coughing. The consultant seen me on the corridor and seen me coughing. And she then organised for a nurse to come down and get a set of obs from me. When 20 minutes then, I was isolated on a ward. After that then, I waited on doctors. They tested me. The results came back then the next day to say that I was COVID positive. I was shocked and I was surprised because I thought, because I have a mild dose of asthma, I thought the pollen in the air was high, it could be just a little bit of the asthma acting up. And after that then, as you say, it gets worse before it gets better, so I started going downhill then from then on. Brandon spent seven days in the matter before completing his recovery at home. Last week, he was back in hospital, only this time he wasn't a patient. Brandon resumed a work experience placement at the Matters post-acute care service in Fairview. Back to help people, back to doing what I like doing and I'm just, I want to help people and be on the front line again and give back to what they gave me. Brandon's passion for nursing and his determination to get back to it hasn't gone unnoticed. My name is Kira Dowling and I'm Assistant Director of Nursing in the Matter Hospital. Brandon, he's just an absolutely remarkable young person. Like his drive and his energy, patients just adore him. They relate to him. Staff just really enjoy having him around as well. And he, Brandon, he just always wants to learn. He's so enthusiastic to learn. Um, you know, and for a young person to know at 17 that he wants to be a nurse and he's so committed and determined to achieve that dream. It's just really, it's really remarkable. And in his case, because he had COVID, mm -hmm. and if anything, it seems that that experience has not 
Absolutely. I suppose that just shows that Brandon has got the characteristics that a good nurse needs and that's the dedication uh, that is required to come into work and care for people every day. Um, and, you know, at 17, like, he just has to be... Like, we're in awe of his commitment. This week, Brandon begins a new job in a nursing home. He has also won a matter scholarship for a college course in pre-nursing in September. He says he's been inspired by the nurses he works with and the nurses who cared for him when he was sick. The staff in the matter alone is phenomenal. The work they do is just, it's amazing. And I'll never forget the words what the nurse said to me on the ward that day. I was just a bit upset, as you are, away from everybody. And she came in and she was doing a set of valves and giving out medication and she goes, wear your mammy for the next few days. And that word just stuck to me and I felt if I can be anything like her, I know I'll achieve. Brandon Fay talking to Philip Bromwell and the very best of luck to him. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.